Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Play Sheet Podcast. I'm Charles and I'm here with my good friend Joe. Hello as usual. So Joe, how about we skip the small talk this week and we jump straight into an analysis of some of the games that we saw over the weekend. Let's start off with the Chargers versus the Ravens. We touted them as two of the hottest teams in that conference at the moment. Uh, Did this game go any way the way you thought it would? I think the only way that it went how I thought it would was that the Baltimore Ravens scored a lot of points. I had the Chargers scoring a lot of points as well, but it just didn't work out that way. Surprising result. Surprising in just how good the Ravens looked. I've never said they're a bad team. We haven't said that. But I don't think many people had them dominating the Chargers in this way. A Chargers team who, let's not forget, have been very, very good through the first five games and have put up points on some good teams. Yeah, I was completely shocked to see how much the Ravens managed to shut the Chargers down offensively. I think Herbert probably wasn't having the best of games, but that defense made it difficult for him. And it's a defense that's been a bit hit and miss so far this season. But if they didn't all show up at the weekend. Yeah, I mean, this Ravens defense, you go back, what was it? Start of last season, two seasons back. And this was one of the premier defenses in the league. They were, you know, getting all the sacks. They were making life easy for Jackson. Some people were even saying that the defense was carrying the team, carrying Jackson, which was nonsense, but that was a narrative that some people went down. They've had a few rough games. They've given up points to some teams they perhaps shouldn't have given up points to. But like you say, they just had a game plan this week, and it just worked. I mean, Chargers got nothing going on the ground. 26 rushing yards total for the game. 26 rushing yards from his Chargers team. I mean, okay, sure, game script was some of that. They were chasing, but that was still off 12 attempts, 2.2 yards carry. With six attempts, Eckler made seven yards. Four attempts, Kelly made seven yards. I mean, peanut numbers. No receiver topped 50 yards, from, and that was Keenan Allen. He was basically shut down. I mean, this was a very effective performance from the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, and I think in in the past, Lamar Jackson's been accused of being a predictable quarterback. I don't think he's maybe had the opportunity yet to prove that he is an elite or highly capable passing quarterback. But I think what you've seen so far this season is the change in how he plays and bring more of that passing game into his routine. And he's proving perfectly capable of doing that. I wouldn't even take that narrative thread from this game because it wasn't it wasn't the passing game that won this game. Sure, it contributed to the win, but you look at what Lamar Jackson finished with, one TD, two interceptions. I think he, he connected on like two-thirds of his passes, only for about 140 net yards when you throw the sacks in. So the passing game was a small part of it, but it's, it's going back to what we said, what was it, three, four weeks ago? We were just talking about how he's matured as a game manager, and it's for decision-making. It's for decision-making, it's how he works through his progressions, it's reading the defences and he's doing all of these things better than what he was a year ago and you know he wasn't doing these things badly a year ago but they came at time when he had that drop in confidence when things just weren't really working out for him it's all clicking for him and he's reading the game like like a veteran he's really seeing it like a veteran and that game management is what's allowing this team to put up the points in the manner that they did Yeah, I think probably the other thing to note is we were talking, it was only a week or two ago, uh, saying 
the step on that Herbert's taken, how those kind of rookie errors, we're not seeing the same rookie errors that we saw in his rookie season last year that maybe lost a game or two. He's been exceptionally proficient. A few arguably unforced errors this week, but would you say that that's because the game just got out of hand very quickly and desperation kicked in? That's exactly it. I wouldn't read too much into this in any way about Herbert's performance. Yes, it was a down game. Yes, he didn't light things up the way he has through the first five games. But I mean, they were chasing the game from pretty early on. I mean, the score at halftime, I think, was 17-6. And so also already by that point, you're two scores behind. Ravens put up just constant points then in the second half. Chargers got no points in the second half. The Chargers were chasing the game. They were passing. Like I said earlier, there were only 12 attempts on the ground. They became predictable because of game script. And you can be the best quarterback in the world, but if they know that you're going to pass and you're not particularly known for scrambling, it's, it's very hard to push a game along like that. Just one more thing that I'd like to mention about this game. Now, we spoke in relative depth at the start of the season about the injury woes that the Ravens had in the running back room. They lost several players. They lost Dobbins. They lost Justice. They lost... Who else, Charles? I'm just trying to run the names off my head, but but I believe that it was their top three players on the depth chart that they lost to injuries. Had a revolving door of veterans, all of whom they've basically kept. They had Murray come in first. They had brought Bell in. They brought Freeman in. There were times where it looked like Tyson Williams, a younger rookie, could end up taking the reins. But what we definitely saw in this game was the experience of his older players coming through. Freeman, Murray and Bell each got a touchdown. Shared carries almost equally with nine touches each. Very interesting to see to see it kind of work like that. A committee of old fellas. And it was extremely effective. The running game really was what dominated the game for the Ravens. The Chargers had no answer to it. All of those players, with perhaps the exception of Bell, who was maybe a bit less effective, all of those players, except for Bell, getting good average yards per carry. You know, Murray 4.9, Freeman 5.9. And it was just interesting to see all those guys making it work. Felt like that Robin Williams meme. And every single time that I heard a score come in, I was like, what? year is it (laughs) (laughs) exactly it was like fantasy from 2016 bell murray and freeman rolling back the years if you picked up tyson williams for your uh, fantasy rosters probably time to put him back on the waivers because it doesn't seem like he's going to be getting too many totes going forward with these guys around yeah good point and then joe should we move on to the broncos and raiders game obviously chargers dropping points here it's a good thing for both of those teams, but certainly one of those teams is more happy than the other right now. Yeah, we saw resilience from this Raiders side. For you, Charles, and for the listeners, just imagine if your boss had been controversially sacked at work. They'd done something really, really bad. They'd been sacked, and not only your friends, but everyone in the world wanted to talk to you about this very exciting, but also bad sacking of your boss. It's extremely disruptive. It's extremely awkward for these players, and that's what we've had to deal with for the last 10 days. They went out there and put a performance on, though. This was an extremely high-pressure game. The first game after losing your coach, a lot going on, a lot for these players to deal with, and they put an absolute performance on. I think this is the most important performance of the Raiders' season so far. It was a pivotal moment for them, like we said, because they could have crumbled. They could have very, very easily crumbled, dropped to 3-3, 
and they could have signposted that their season was going one particular way after the loss of Gruden. They've done the opposite here and show that they're a team of character, a team of integrity, and a team that are playing well. And, you know, they're 4-2 and two now, second in the division to the Chargers, only on their divisional win-loss record. They've got everything to play for, got momentum, if that means anything. I'm not sure it does, but a lot of people won't say that it does. So they've got all that going for them, and they've come through this test. Yeah, I mean, that's it. All eyes were obviously on the Raiders this week with everything that broke out in the news. And and as you said, it probably just ended up being an extremely frustrating topic for these players who wanted nothing more than to just go out onto that field and play football. So um, I think they were... You know what, Charles? I'm sure that some of them would have wanted to talk about it. I'm sure that some of them would have had very strong feelings and views about that. Going back to the analogy of your boss... Imagine if your boss had been saying extremely offensive things that related to you behind your back over the years and you found that out last week. And this is a guy who you've had to work closely with, who you know well, who looks you in the eye and tells you what to do in terms of uh, your actions on the football field and you found this out about him. It is extremely hurtful and it's something that you probably come up against a lot during your life. So I imagine that some of the players may well have wanted to talk about this well, they can't because they're professionals. So that's just something else to add into it. But as you said, they went out on the pitch and they, they put in the performance they needed to. Carr looked Absolutely. very accomplished. You know, the Broncos didn't look half bad in the end. They put up at least a bit of a fight. But as we pointed out, I mean, I just think Teddy Bridgewater just made too many mistakes and ultimately it cost them. This is it. When you said they put up a bit of a fight there, it's the perception that I have of Bridgewater. And again, it goes back to when I used to watch him as a Viking. There was one play in particular. The team were down by two scores, I believe, about midway through the fourth quarter. It was everything still to play for. There was time to make a comeback. There was time to make a comeback and time to win. An aggressive quarterback with a right attitude would have been forcing the ball down the field, making the right moves, making the right calls. Bridgewater floated a pass, and I mean floated. It, it, it was like a butterfly for an interception. And, and it was the kind of pass you make when you're four or five scores down, uh, two minutes on the clock, it's garbage time, you just want to get out of there. That's the pass that he made when he should have been leading a comeback. And I've said this so many times on the podcast, and some people might think that I'm doing him a disservice, but Bridgewater's not the quarterback I would want in the trenches with me when it's the fourth quarter and you've got to make a comeback. He just doesn't seem to have that about him. And this was a Broncos side that just didn't look like winning once they went down in that fourth quarter. So, again, I feel like we talk about it every week, but that has suddenly made this a competitive division once again. You know, Chargers and Raiders are scrapping it out at the top. And then you don't have the Broncos and the Chiefs a million miles behind on three and three. I don't care what people say about the Chiefs. The Chiefs will come back. There's too much quality, too much experience, too much just winning attitude in that team to stay at 0.500 for too long. I can't see them not winning more games and not getting right back up there. Yes, their schedule is hard, but it doesn't matter because this is the Chiefs. The Chiefs will start winning games. So for a team like the Chargers to drop a game to the Ravens, that's a stinger. That's a stinger and it's going to come back to hurt them because... It's almost like Michael Myers, like Jason X. The Chiefs are behind you and they're not going to stop coming. So you've got to try and keep as much distance between them as you can. 
And finally, Joe, let's talk about the Steelers and the Seahawks. That was, uh, it was an ugly game in parts. I think it was, it was certainly a scrappy game at times, but probably no less than we expected with the Seahawks going in with their backup quarterback and Big Ben playing the way that he has been recently. What did you make of this game, Joe? Yeah, I think your uh, opening kind of gambit there kind of summed it up quite well. What I would say, just to mention Ben, a lot gets made about how his arms allegedly gone and this kind of stuff. And I think that's the wrong narrative. It's really interesting watching Roethlisberger play now because he does still have an arm when he needs to. When he needs to launch a rocket, when he needs to really put a dart in between players, he can still do that. It seems mentally a lot of the time when I'm watching Roethlisberger, he's making the wrong decisions. He's throwing passes where receivers aren't there. He's reading the game wrong. He should still have a perfectly active and youthful mind at sub the age of 40. But it seems to me his decision making is what's really making his game as poor as it is right now. And if you look at some of the passes that he made, you'd chastise a rookie for making them. On the other side of the ball, Geno Smith. I, I think we got what we expected from Geno Smith, really. He was he was up for it. He was ready for the game. He didn't do anything silly. But ultimately, he just didn't have a quality. Like we said, he just doesn't have that quality when the chips are down that Russell Wilson brings to a team. And very, 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 very few quarterbacks out there do. So it's not like we expected Geno Smith to come out there with that. He showed us in that game what a normal quarterback looks like playing for the Seahawks. He ate five sacks. He could only get 200 yards going through the air. He was trying to get Metcalf. He was throwing in the ball a lot. But this is a team that you take out a couple of stud players and there's just not much else there. There's so many gaps in this roster. And 20 points, I think, as a backup, Geno Smith did as much as could be expected. But like I said, if you're not Russell Wilson, you can't drag this team through the coals like you have to to sometimes squeeze results out for the Seahawks team. Yeah, but that that even in itself is quite a thing because you've got to take a look at this Steelers team and say, yes, they got the win against the Seahawks. But in that way, with the team that the Seahawks had, it, it felt like it shouldn't have been anywhere near that close. That's exactly it, Giles. And this is a, you've got to put this game into context. And this just once again goes to show that this is a bad Steelers team. It was the Seahawks who you take away Russell Wilson and they're a bad team. Seahawks playing with a backup quarterback and the Steelers struggle to beat them needing an overtime field goal. So you're exactly right there. It's a win, but it's it's a win that has to be put into context. It was 23-20 against the Seahawks minus Wilson. And that minus Wilson is very important because had Wilson been playing, we can say ifs, buts and all you want to, but the Seahawks would have most probably have won this perhaps even comfortably had Wilson been playing and that's no disrespect to Geno Smith either but Wilson just manages to do things squeeze life out of his team that other quarterbacks can't well game winning move TJ Watt punches the ball loose from Geno Smith now you could argue that TJ Watt got plenty of practice with his punches in earlier on in the game it was a moment of I suppose quite a bit of division, um, certainly amongst the commentators at the time, fans in the league. Where's your view on this? How did you see that earlier moment where TJ Watt was just kind of wailing on the ball and at times the player in an attempt to punch it loose after the whistle had been blown up? 
it is my belief that TJ Watt should have been ejected for what he did to Alex Collins. I don't see that any other way. Now, everyone knows that punching the ball is part of a game. Ever since Charles Tillman made the peanut punch a big thing, it's become more and more a tool that linebackers, even DBs use to try and force fumbles. What TJ Watt did there wasn't a peanut punch. It wasn't just trying to eject the ball. It was basically assault. He was throwing overhand haymakers. Overhand haymakers which were missing the ball and missing the arms. He punched him square in the gut. If you're doing anything and you punch someone square in the gut, in basically any sport aside from boxing, you should be ejected. TJ Watt should have been ejected. And had that been any other player and not been at Heinz Field, they would have got ejected. I'm telling you now, if Miles Garrett had done that in a game, Miles Garrett would still be facing media right now, having to atone for it and apologise. Because TJ Watt's a Watt, he gets away with it. And I feel that Watt got away with it. Is your view then that if contact with the player is made, then regardless of the in- intention, that then becomes a foul? Or is intent part of the decision-making process? I think that in trying to punch out the ball and loosen the ball, there are elements of contact which are acceptable. You're trying to punch the ball. If you miss the ball and kind of catch someone on the arm, that's in the realms of acceptability. When you're throwing, it was it was literal. It was overhand rights, right? So he so he he's throwing overhand rights. He's throwing uppercuts. The first couple of punches landed in Alex Collins' gut, and he continued to do it. You just can't do that. You just can't do that. It's it's flagrancy, which is next level. I absolutely think that there has to be some judgment, but I can't see what TJ Watt did any other way as being a flagrant punch and a clear ejection. I can't see it any other way, Charles. I think for me, the thing that makes a mockery out of all of this is that TJ Watt can do something like that and not be ejected, yet if he waved or wagged a finger in his face instead, he'd be gone. He'd, he'd get a 15-yard penalty. He'd be gone for doing it twice. Yeah. Uh, that, to me, sounds ridiculous that you can do something like that twice, you know, taunt twice and get ejected, yet you can throw four punches at a guy, some of which hit the ball, some of which don't, and then it's what? It's a flag on the play? Well, what I found ridiculous was how... TJ Watt was still on the field for that. Now, Malik Jackson didn't get ejected, but have you seen the Malik Jackson late hit on Kyler Murray that happened last week in the Browns-Cardinals game? Yeah, I did see that, yeah, which was oh, very debatable, to say the uh, least. Very debatable. It was It was, It was. was ridiculous. I've seen grandmas put more force on grandkids when they're going in for a kiss, mate. That was the most ridiculous roughing, because... In no definition of a word can it be called roughing. That was the most ridiculous call that I've ever seen, but it was a roughing the pass call, 15-yard penalty. Absolutely ridiculous. You're getting calls like that, but, but just to go back to TJ Watt, right? I hate using mixed sports analogies here, but imagine if this is a, you know, a soccer game and a player has the ball and you come in and you hack like TJ Watt did, but in trying to tackle the ball, you literally blast someone in the kneecaps with four kicks you'd get sent off. And I don't see any difference to what TJ was doing there on the same principles. You've got to assume that no players are going out with intent to hurt other players during the game, but players still go helmet to helmet and get ejected. This was more flagrant than going helmet to helmet and for some of those calls I've seen players get sent off. 
I won't labour the point here because we've talked about it for long enough and it'll be interesting to hear the views of some of our listeners, but I've said where I stand on it. Okay then, well, I mean, talking about hurting players, there's a whole team hurting down in Cleveland. Um, The Browns are reeling from injury issues now. Oh, wow, yeah. This Browns team is starting to get something of the uh, 2020 San Francisco 49ers about them, where they just seem to be picking up injury after injury. You look at the injury list and it's just getting ugly. Now, they've lost some lost some really key players over the last few days. I mean, Hunt's out for a while. It could, it could be, what, six to eight weeks? It may not be season ending, but it's going to be most of the regular season that he won't be playing for. I believe that Jeremiah owozu Koromaya is also out for some time. You combine that with, you know, the prolonged and recurrent injury that Baker has due to what, was it a torn labrum, something like that? The continued injury woes that Nick Chubb has... Everything that receivers like that OBJ has been dealing with, Landry's been dealing with, all the rookies in this team seem to have picked up injuries. Uh, you feel sorry for this Browns team. They're struggling out there. And, you know, this was a team that I really thought had a long playoff run in them. It'll be interesting to see how they respond to all of this. Do you think they'll still be able to make a playoff run, Charles? Or do you think that these injuries are insurmountable? Yeah, really good question uh, because it's one I was about to ask you, but I think this Browns team started off so hot. They really looked exceptional. Now, I appreciate that they had played teams like the Falcons, the Texans, the... Well, the first game was was the Chiefs. And they nearly yeah, beat which the they lost. But it was a good performance. No, it was, but a lot of their, you know, the start of their season, the teams that they beat, it was teams like the Texans, the Bears, the Vikings... And then they're losing to Chiefs, Chargers, Cardinals. So it's a shame that they don't have that full squad of players because you'd like to think fully fit, they may have been able to put up a bit more of a fight against some of these teams. I will say yes. Against the Cardinals, they didn't put up much of a fight. They they got beaten quite comprehensively against the Cardinals. I mean, they put up a fight against the Chargers. But that's a matchup that they could have won had they had a fully fit team, potentially. I know what you're saying about they've eaten L's in both of those games, but it wasn't like they weren't in the fight. They were definitely in the fight of those games. They just happened to come out on the wrong side. Well, they've got an opportunity with their run-up of games that are coming to claw back some ground. They're playing the Steelers, they're playing the Patriots, they're playing the Lions. They've got the Bengals thrown in there who are actually performing quite well, well this yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. But there's at least three games there that you'd think if they can <laughs> sort of tape together enough of a team to get out there and, and put a semi-decent performance against, they should come out victors. And to be honest, I think they're the games that they need to win if they want to stay in the hunt for playoffs because after that you've got the Ravens twice you've got the Raiders the Packers you know it doesn't get easy from there on in so I think you've got to be winning three of the next four and you've got to be hoping winning four mate I think you've got to be winning four yeah and you've got to be hoping that players are then starting to come back from injury for some of these tougher matchups towards the end of the season absolutely yeah I I couldn't agree with you more and to be honest the game you're most likely to lose there as you pointed out is the Bengals. You don't want to be losing divisional games against teams that aren't the Ravens because when you come head-to-head, that's going to really hurt you to get that second place in the division. So you could make a case that they've got to win their next five games. Because like you say, there's the Ravens doubleheader 
which you'd make them underdogs for. Raiders, okay. Packers, Packers seem to be pretty imperious right now. And you've got the Bengals again later on in the season. They've got to go on a streak now. And it's, it's going to be very hard with the injuries they have because it's hard to start building a streak when you've got so many players on the physio table. Yeah. So let's take a little look then towards next week and maybe take a quick look at two of the games in particular. Let's start with the Colts at the 49ers. Yeah, so I wanted to get your views on this, Charles, to start with. Where do you have the Colts right now? What kind of team do you see the Colts as? Do you see them as a team which is a good 2-4 and four team? Do you think they deserve to be 2-4? and four? Do you think there's any way for them to sneak into the playoffs in any shape or form? Or do you think that, you know, this is a weird transitional year and we're going to see a different looking Colts next season? Yeah, I'm probably more in in the latter camp, I'd say. I I think they've put up some really strange performances. You, You know, just as I think I've got a handle on the Colts and they're actually in transition, they're not doing that well. They either then come away with dominant wins like 31 3 versus the Texans, or they put up strong fights like, you know, taking the Ravens to overtime. So. I can't quite place them, but I just don't think they have that edge to take them over the edge in games that really they they should be walking away from. And I think this 49ers team is good enough as it stands to put up a solid fight, to be honest. I think it will be a close game again, but if I was putting money on it, I'd probably lean towards the 49ers. I go further than that this is a 49ers team which is coming off a bye week which is a wonderful luxury to have they're going to be rested they're going to be fresh from you know the injuries they might have picked up in those first five games they're in arguably the toughest division certainly in the nfc you can't drop games and they can't drop a game against the colts i see this as well because if garoppolo comes back he's playing for his life right now shanahan did say that if garoppolo's fit he'll start Every game for him right now is him trying to prolong his career as a starter in the immediate future. So I could see the 49ers doing a number on the Colts this week. Okay, well, you're you're certainly more confident than me. Uh, of course, you're talking to a Packers fan and all we know how to do is lose after a bye week. So when you talk about that rested benefit <laughs> of a bye week, uh, it's something I'm yet to experience. But I think it will be interesting to see who the 49ers lead with. I think they've got a really impressive running room. I think if either Lance or Jimmy G can come back and kind of find some rhythm and ease into that passing game, supported by their running backs, they've got everything they need to beat the Colts. My view on this Colts team is that there is absolute talent there. A lot of the players they drafted last year, I think they had a very good draft class last year, bringing in players like Pittman, Taylor, those kind of guys. I've, I'm not going to labour the point, I've said it a million times before, I don't rate Wentz, I don't think that Wentz is getting the most out of his team, and I think that the defence is too reliant on certain individuals. Darius Leonard, for example, is is far too important to his team, if a player can be far too important to a team. You take Leonard out of his defence, and it falls apart. He's, he's the definition of a linchpin Mike linebacker, sideline to sideline, so important. This is a team, I feel, that has a lot of individuals playing well, but it doesn't come together as a team enough. 
Yeah, I think that's really fair. I think that is exactly it. There is undoubtedly talent there, but they're not meshing as a team because they don't have enough talent in the surrounding players to all knit together as a unit. It's a few stars, but not enough of a solid base to to really help elevate those star players. I think that Reich moved away from his fundamentals in this offseason. This was a team that was really building nicely. They'd built around the draft. They bought good players in. And then he goes and does something like then bring Wentz into that and start to bring in bigger studs. And I think, in my view, they've lost a little bit of where this team was going and they've lost some of that direction. Cool. And then another team that can't really decide whether it wants to be good or not, the New Orleans Saints, and they'll be taking on a Russell Wilson-less Seahawks. Yeah, so good to talk about this one. We've picked up over the last few weeks a few kind of matchups where it's where it's almost kind of crossroads before the first third of the season. This feels like a crossroads for both of these teams. Seahawks have lost their first game without Wilson. I'm not going to say that's a surprise. I'm going to say that it was obvious. It could have gone either way against the Steelers because they're not a great team, but it went the wrong way for them. The Saints sit 3-2. and two. But they haven't been playing particularly well. And some of those wins have come against weaker opposition. All right, one was against the Packers. But I think after how the Packers have played since and how the Saints have played since, we've just got to put that first Saints-Packers game of the season into the the what-the-hell draw and leave it there and just not make any judgments based on that. Saints lose this. They're 3-3. Probably three games behind the Buccaneers after this week. They're almost out of the race for the NFC South already. Seahawks lose this, they're 2-5, and five. they're dead in the NFC West, season's basically over in terms of making playoffs. These teams both need to win really to keep things going, else the season's only going one way, and I have trouble calling this one. I, I, Geno Smith has not been bad at all from what we've seen, but the issue isn't Geno Smith. It's funny saying this when you've got a backup quarterback in a team that's been a playoff team for so long, it's the rest of the team. Geno Smith can play perfectly proficient, but the defense is making errors and there are too few quality players in the Seahawks team. The Saints, you just don't know what you're getting with James Winston. He's a box of chocolates. Where do you have this one, Charles? I think the question for me is going to come down to how good are the Seahawks secondary? Because I think, as you've just mentioned, the Saints are very much a boom or bust team. Jameis Winston will either go and drop five like absolute bomb passing touchdowns on you or he won't score anything and the Saints will come away with maybe seven points. It's really up to the Seahawks to shut down Winston more than it is Gino to step up and take this Seahawks offense on a run. I don't think that's his job. It's his job to game manage as much as he can. And he's going to need the Seahawks defense to do him a favor this game. If they can keep the scores low, I think that Geno Smith is proficient enough to at least get a few scores against the Saints. You've made a great point there, a really, really good point. And I'm going to chip in on that. And I think you've actually helped me come to a decision myself here. This Seahawks secondary is not set up to stop a player like Winston. And I'll tell you why. If we're thinking Jameis Winston, what do we think? Scoring, like, you know, a highlight reel touchdown, 60-yard bomb, following up by an interception. The Seahawks team, because of one player in particular, are not set up 
to cover that. Are you are you going to mention Adams? I am 100% going to mention <laughs> Adams. And, and what's more, I'm going to highlight an example from last week's game because it's fresh in my memory. Please talk about the helmet bounce. <laughs> I'm exactly going to talk about helmet bounce. I'm so happy you reminded me about this, Charles. And this goes back to one of the points I was making about Ben Roethlisberger throwing passes to players who weren't there. There was a pass, I think it was I think it was about midway through the third quarter, where Roethlisberger throws an absolute dart straight at Jamal Adams, who was rushing on. Now, Adams, as a safety, as a defensive back, isn't thinking cover the pass. He isn't thinking interception. All he's thinking is, I'm going to run and try and get a sack, because that's all he thinks. The ball hit him square in the grill. And any other safety, any safety from any team, whoever you want it to be, you know, most linebackers from other teams, you're taking Eric Kendricks, he would have caught that. But because it's Jamal Adams, who just doesn't like interceptions, he didn't catch it. James Winston throwing bombs and playing how he plays, you're almost playing against cover one the whole time because Adams is coming so far forward, coming into the box, playing the way that he plays. James Winston playing against cover one with only one safety out there could definitely make hay. And so actually, I'm really glad that you raised that point, Charles. I see this game being a high-scoring game for the Saints now, thinking about it. <laughs> it's quite funny because we had this conversation a year ago when Adams first, the, the trade was announced from the Jets. And I was talking about what a good move I thought it was. And you were very quick to remind me that this is a man that doesn't get a lot of interceptions and boy, if he didn't prove it in a single moment in that game last week, that was awful play from a safety. He's a sub-package linebacker. He very, very rarely plays like an orthodox strong safety. I'm surprised he really still has strong safety as his position because that's just not how he really plays the game. Yes, strong safeties will go down to the box. Yes, they will rush the pass. That's part of the modern game. Look at how Harrison Smith plays. Look at those kind of guys. Yes, they do that. But... Adams is, he's just lining up in that box far, far more. His cover is terrible. And if you've got good safeties out there, if you're playing cover two, if you're doubling up on receivers, you're going to get interceptions against Winston. Did you see him introduce himself in the game? Yeah, and did you see his PFF ranking underneath his name as he said that? It was so unfortunate timing. (laughs) The best in the nation. Nope. <laughs> Ranked 60th out of 82 eligible players. <laughs> what an idiot. Oh dear. It was not a good luck. Good for him though. He's getting paid a lot of money. So we can't well, yeah. laugh, can we? He's doing something right, isn't he? He's doing something right. I think that pretty much ties it up for this week then. Here's to one more week of NFL. Looking forward to it. And looking forward to next week when we're talking about Jamal Adams' free interceptions to dominate the game for the Seahawks. (laughs) See you next week, Charles. See you then, Joe.